0: Hello and welcome to episode 115 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a policy analyst, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Eyal Press about his book Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toll of Inequity in America. A.L. Press is an author and a journalist based in New York. He was the recipient of a James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism, an, Carnegie Fellowship, I'm sorry, an Andrew Carnegie Fellowship, and Coleman and Puffin Foundation Fellowships. He is a contributor to The New Yorker, The New York Times, and the author of Beautiful Souls, Absolute Convictions, and the book we'll be discussing today, Dirty Work. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, A.L. Press.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, I always ask the same first question, and it's kind of the comic book origin story question: How did you get from wherever you started to where you were writing books about the jobs we demand get done, but have no desire to take responsibility for?
1: Mm. Hmm. Well, I, uh, I, you know, thought that in college I was a a history major, and I thought uh, of uh, pursuing a career as a historian, Um, but uh, between the steps needed to do that. And, um, my mid twenties, I fell in love with journalism and, um, decided I really wanted to, to take a crack at writing for magazines and, um, wound up at first just writing for whoever would publish me. And, uh, I think that's generally what it takes, uh, for years, uh, and doing odd jobs, uh, to, to pay the rent in the meantime, and then gradually got the opportunity to write a couple of books and, um, here I am today, having just published my third, uh, which, as you mentioned, is titled "Dirty Work" and is about work uh, is about is about jobs that um, are hidden from view, but but I think are are sort of central to the way we live.
0: Is there anything along the journey that kind of sent you in a particular direction of the kind of work that you like to write about, or what you know led you to the books you start to write? You've started to write.
1: I think I always knew I wanted to to um, in-depth, long-form journalism that focused on issues of social justice. Um, and uh, interestingly, when when I started out, which was kind of the mid to late 90s, um, that was not a a very promising career path in American journalism. I think that, um, this was post cold war triumphalist America. It was the Clinton era, uh, but in many ways it felt like the Reagan era still. And America was kind of, I think celebrating itself as the model that the rest of the world should live up to. Uh, and I saw it very differently because I grew up in Buffalo, New York. Um, and I saw the good jobs leave and a lot of inequality and poverty, um, deindustrialization, rust belt. And I always felt um, you know, that, that as a journalist, I would want to cover um, the more forgotten stories and the more forgotten people in this country. And I think today we, we have an open conversation about inequality that um, is maybe 20 years overdue.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Uh, to kind of turn to the book, one of the central questions of post-World War II philosophy has been, how did so many people in Germany Uh, how could they have participated in or supported the Holocaust? Your use of the term dirty work is based on the Everett Hughes lecture dealing with this topic. Can you talk more about what his argument was and how this kind of worked into uh, how you got to where you got in the book?
1: Sure. Yeah. uh, Everett Hughes is the starting point of my book. He was a sociologist, as you mentioned, who taught at the University of Chicago, um, was very influential and had some Very, very famous students, among them Irving Goffman, who might well be the the, the most influential uh, sociologist of the 20th century. Hughes is a little less well-known today, um, but he he wrote this fascinating essay called Good People and Dirty Work, and it really is the point of departure for my book. It was based on time he spent in post-war Germany. And he went there actually just to teach. It was Frankfurt, and he, uh, it was 1948, uh, so just a couple years after World War II. And Hughes, as he returns to Germany, he's been there before. It's clear from his diaries, which, which I read and, and drew on. It's clear he's been there before, and he wants to talk to the folks he knew. Um, and these were not uh, members of the Nazi Party. These were what he refers to in the title of that lecture as good people. They were cosmopolitan, uh, liberal values, open-minded, tolerant. And when he would bring up what happened under the Nazis, the first thing he would hear from these good people is is a disavowal, right? Is is what as one architect put it, uh, who he visited one night. You know, I'm ashamed for my people whenever I think about it. Whenever whenever the subject of what the Nazis did uh, was brought up, but in that same conversation, the architect uh, goes on on to say, to tell Hughes, but you know, the Jews, they really were a problem. And something had to be done to settle this problem. And Hughes is is sort of, you know, kind of stops in his track at at this comment. Uh, The architect goes on to talk about how the Jews were taking all the good jobs and how they were gathered in these filthy ghettos. Um, And so you have on the one hand, you know, we don't want we have nothing to do with what the Nazis did and indeed were ashamed of it. On the other hand, the Jews were a problem that needed to be dealt with some way. And in this essay, uh, Good People and Dirty Work, Hughes extrapolates from that sort of on the one hand, on the other hand, which by the way, he kept hearing versions of. It wasn't just one conversation. It was over and over. And he proceeds to say that, you know, we would like to think of, the dirty work that took place under the Nazis, namely the killing, the, the genocide, the camps, as something that was done by a rogue group that just was separate from society. But that's too convenient. The actual, the, the, the more troubling thing is that the dirty work was done by people who, who were who were agents of the good people good people like the the ones he knew not because the good people actually approved of the Nazi ideology but because they were apathetic enough and because they had acquiesced to this idea they shared this idea that the jews were a problem a kind of outgroup of society and something had to be done about that problem and then they didn't want to ask too many questions after that and um and what's most fascinating to me about this essay is not what it says about Nazi Germany, because you know Hughes himself was not a specialist in in Uh, post-war Germany. Um, And in some ways, he wasn't even particularly interested in, in indicting the Germans. As he said openly afterwards, when in these exchanges with other sociologists, he wrote that essay with his fellow North Americans in mind. And what he posited was that in every society, you have a certain amount of dirty work, That takes place. It doesn't have to be as extreme and colossally horrible as what happened under the Nazis. But what's similar is this dynamic of the relationship between the good people and the dirty work, that these two things are not separate, um, that in fact, there are so many um, unpleasant and unethical activities that go on to which good people uh, effectively, you know, leave it to others to do um, and and don't want to hear too much about. Um, and and that's the point of again, the the, the way I, I take up this essay is by by asking what are the forms of dirty work that happen in this society and how much of that work has what Hughes called an unconscious mandate from society, from the good people who on the one hand, you know, are discomforted by it. And on the other hand, don't want to see it or be asked about it, and in that way, it sort of goes on.
0: It's interesting because you, you, the way you put it in the book, is that he, you know, he published it to bring attention to the dangers which lurk in our own midst. And I was kind of curious, uh, you know. I know it's not necessarily uh, the work that's come out into the open, but in many ways, over the last say five or six years, uh, probably during the period you were writing the book, a lot of the things that used to kind of be lurking under the, you know. Uh, under the cover of society, have started to leak out, you know, in a lot of ways. We've seen kind of a rise of populism, a rise of some fascist tendencies, a rise of a lot of racism. Uh, you know, what, what was your take on this as you were writing this? I know you're mostly talking about uh, the actual thing about dirty work, but there has to be some relationship. I, I'm sure that you had to have some thoughts about this as we were kind of going through this historical period.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that's a very interesting question. I haven't really been asked it before. And and, and I guess what I would say is that, um, you know, the book I've written is addressed to people who, um, I think, fall into that good people category. Um, In other words, people who are going to read about Uh, the dirty work that goes on in industrial slaughterhouses. There's a section of the book about that. People who are going to read about the dirty work that goes on behind the walls of jails and prisons, people who are going to read about uh, the dirty work of carrying out targeted assassinations in our never-ending wars, and at some level are going to feel discomfort, right? If not quite saying what the architect said, you know, I'm ashamed, at the very least feeling like that is not something I myself would do, and that is not something I approve of, um, right? There's this sort of so I, the book is very much addressed, I think, to to that kind of reader. At the same time, you've you've raised an important point, which is that there will there are people in this country and and out there um, who may read about these things and say, "I'm not discomforted by that at all."
0: Yeah, that, that's um, exactly you know, what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah.
1: drone strikes more of it, you know, as, as Donald Trump said, when he campaigned, um, you know, we're not just going to hit the, the, the targets, we're going to get their family members too, you know, and those kinds of lines often drew cheers. Um, you know, there is a, a real question of, you know, in, in some sense, you know, is America, uh, one country or, or several different countries now kind of uncomfortably pieced together in which some people are are really discomforted by the the things I write about in the book and other people uh, are are more discomforted by the idea that someone would have a problem with it um, you know and 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 that's a valid you know point to raise um, I don't I don't deal with it in depth in the book but but it's a very valid point
0: uh, because this is the decarceration not podcast, we'll probably spend a bit more time talking about the parts of the book that discuss uh, prison. Uh, The first occupation you discuss is correctional therapists, and you called the first chapter dual loyalties. One of the suggestions that some criminal justice reform organizations sometimes put forward is that we should have independent observers inside prisons. But I kind of take what you've written as a little bit of a cautionary tale here. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered?
1: Yeah, so um, the book starts, as you say, with uh, the story of a a mental health aide at a prison called the Dade Correctional Institution, and her name is Harriet Krizkowski, and Harriet has never worked in a prison before. Uh, She's pretty scared when she begins, um, as she openly said to me, you know, she was a woman working in an all-male prison in the mental health ward. This was not a job that was her dream job by any means. She needed a job was the one she got. Uh, it was post-recession Florida after the 2008 recession. Her, her husband didn't have work at the time and, uh, and they had two young children. So she gets this job. Um, and when she goes into it, she's actually thinking she and the security guards are allies. You know, They've got her back. Um, if something bad happens, she'll, they'll protect her. Uh, and furthermore, that, that they're the good guys here. Um, in her mind that was it was kind of that way you know good guys and, and if not bad guys people should she should be wary of and she had a certain wariness towards the incarcerated people towards towards folks she she felt um, you know she she couldn't entirely trust and and didn't know if she, how closely to work with them um, so she was not what um, what some correctional officers refer to as a hug a thug this is the sort of derogatory term for correctional psychiatrists who who maybe go in with the kind of I'm gonna I'm gonna protect the defenseless, you know, incarcerated folks and in against the system. That was not Harriet at all. But as Harriet begins to work at Dade, she just, her, her views change. And they change really from direct experience. She does come to really care for and, and, and feel sympathy for uh, some of the patients in her care. Um, and she also comes to see that they are subject to abuse, uh, that some of them are not getting meals um, and they start complaining to her about this, that, that they're not getting out in the rec yard, which is their only, you know, sunlight that they get. Um, and when she challenges this in the most gentle possible way, with an email to you know, her supervisor one day, she immediately experiences retaliation. The guards who she thought would protect her when she's doing her work start leaving her alone. Um, they start opening the security doors, uh, security gates more slowly for her. They're basically sending her a message, you know, don't defy us, don't report on things you think are wrong because we run this house. This is our house, not yours. Um, and so in terms of your question about independent observers, uh, an independent observer, you know, is probably going to be subject to those same, as, as I said, dual loyalties is the subject of the, is the title of the chapter. You know, here is someone who on the one hand has the job of taking care of these uh, prisoners with severe mental illnesses. And on the other hand, feels beholden to security for her own protection and safety. And I think that would be the case with an independent observer.
0: The prison part of the book is, in a sense, anchored by the horrifying story of what happened to Darren Rainey in Florida's prison system. I kind of want to believe that people would be shocked by this story, but it was widely reported and even ended up as the basis of an episode of Orange is the New Black. And Florida's system doesn't seem to have changed much since that event, and it was a particularly brutal crime, probably more brutal than any, almost anything the people currently incarcerated in that prison were sentenced for, but nobody was held accountable. Can you explain what happened and kind of that failure to find accountability?
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah. So as I said, Harriet, uh, will we'll go back to her story. She, she discovers that there is abuse. She, she also discovers she shouldn't say anything about it. And one day she shows up at work and um, hears about this guy Rainey. Um, who she was told had defecated in his cell and therefore was taken to a hot shower and given a hot shower. Um, and uh, when she first hears this, she thinks that's that's a good thing. Uh, but then she hears from, from the nurses that he collapsed in that shower and died. And again, her first impulse is to think he had a heart attack, uh, something, you know, s- some kind of, Health failure. What she learns is that, um, in fact, this was deliberate. Uh, that that Rainey was among several prisoners who had been locked in that shower, and and the temperature was controlled from the outside. It's really just, it's 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 really quite horrifying to just think of the premeditated nature of this. So the hose that that, that brings the water into this stall is controlled from the outside by a group of guards. And from what we know was 180 degrees, which is basically the temperature of, of a cup of tea. Um, and Rainey collapses in that shower. We don't know exactly why. It could have been from the steam that he was trying to sort of get out of the way, but, but the steam built up. Eventually he falls, he hits the ground, the floor of the, of the stall, he dies there. And the autopsy photos that we have seen that we that have been leaked show that he suffered severe burns on on his arms, back, legs, uh, you name it. Um, Harriet and the rest of the staff learn about this grisly crime, and none of them report it. And again, this speaks to the, the pressure and the and the fear uh, that that runs a place like that. Um, and, and, and that isn't actually particular to date. And I, I talk in the book about how, you know, regardless of the jail or prison, there is this dynamic of the, this dual loyalty that exists. And, you know, the abuses could be more subtle. Um, but there's this question of what does a care, what does a mental health provider, a caregiver do in such a situation? Do you stick to medical ethics or do you bend those ethics? Because this is a jail this is a prison, this is, you know, a violent environment and the guards are, are in control. Um, so anyway, I, I tell that story. Um, it is, it is indeed a, a, just a, a shocking, uh, case. Um, and yet it's a story that, um, if it had been, you know, we only know about that story because a prisoner, uh, leaked, leaked the details to the Miami Herald. Um, otherwise it might well have been covered over. And I should say that, um, although I haven't in my reporting encountered anything quite so graphic again. uh, I recently wrote a story about deaths behind bars uh, that was published in the New Yorker. And in one of the um, declarations that I read of an incarcerated person in Georgia, this person described being locked inside a steaming shower. And that was so chilling to read because it it just brought all of what I reported on back and made me wonder... You know, how how little we actually know uh, in terms of what goes on.
0: Yeah, I think we often assume people will care. We talked about this a little bit earlier. If only a light were shined on the abuses. But when the light is shined in that instance... In two DOJ reports on the brutality of Alabama prisons, in many reports on Florida when the Lee riot happened in South Carolina, the deaths and heat in Mississippi prisons, the thousands of deaths from COVID in prisons across the country, what's been happening the last few weeks in Georgia, we don't see the kind of response that you might hope for uh, And, you know, like I said before, there wasn't a lot of accountability in that instance. Uh, What does this kind of say? I mean, we are kind of the agents, you know, we, as you say, as the premise of the book is, you know, we empower those, those situations in a lot of ways. What does all of this say about us?
1: Well, it it says a lot. And, And let's go back to Everett Hughes for one second, because there's this fascinating passage in that essay he wrote, Good People and Dirty Work, where he talks about, um, you know, occasionally in America, a newspaper will report on a brutality that took place in a prison. Um, and, and the good people in, in, in the town or whoever read it are, are, are liable to say, you know, wow, th- those guards were predisposed to brutality. What, what a terrible thing those guards did. And Hughes is troubled by this. Hughes says, well, okay. But what message has society sent those guards? You know, is it really uh, something that bothers society or is it that society has effectively washed its hands of the situation and left it to, to you know, the, the prison guards to, um, you know, basically be a little bit brutal, but just don't don't make it our business, right? Do it behind bars, do it behind closed doors. Uh, That was in 1962. Now, let's fast forward to 2021, where the United States is now home to the world's largest prison system. And to be sure, there's been a great deal, thanks to people like yourself, there's been rising awareness, I think, of the costs of mass incarceration and a, a sort of swinging a little bit back of the pendulum. Uh, But the fact of the matter is uh, these, uh, I think what it says about us as a society still is that we prefer not to hear too much about the conditions in our jails and prisons. They are still very much out of sight, out of mind. Um, There's been reform at the margins, but the core issues um, are are still there. And, And so, you know, It's it's very much I think an example of how you know I think that the guards at Dade what was so interesting to me is that Harriet Kraskowski was not she did not put the blame on them she said you know she came to feel there's a system here and there are conditions she knew a lot of guards who were doing their best and 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 trying to do a good job she also knew some who were brutal and who were 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 cruel Um, but. She was not. It was not her conclusion that we should just blame them, because, she, as she said, you know, she came to conclude that that the guys in the in the mental health health ward she worked in were what she called throwaway people. Uh, they were folks who basically cycled through the criminal justice system, did not have access to um, adequate mental health care, and and many other things. Um, and as a consequence. Um, you know, are, are sort of warehoused in an institution where, surprise, surprise, bad things start happening.
0: Yeah. Another element, I think you're just raising this, is that when something bad happens in prison, we tend to blame the officers. You know, when something ha- bad happens with police, we tend to blame the officers. When something bad happens with whatever, you know, societal problem, we tend to start talking bad apples. Uh, but a lot of the problems are systemic and we seem almost universally allergic to the idea of talking about systemic problems and dealing with them in any, in any real way. Uh, would you like to talk kind of more about this societal example of what I think psychologists might call transference and also about the need for systemic discussions as opposed to singling out individual bad actors?
1: Yeah, I think I mean that's that's a great point, and it's a very important part of the book. So, so the book isn't really just about dirty work; it's it's also about inequality. It's about who ends up getting assigned this work, and you know where it takes place, and and who doesn't end up getting assigned this work. And and to, to be very blunt about it, you know, the powerful and the privileged uh, rarely do it, uh, rarely see it, and are rarely held accountable for it. Uh, those in the lower rungs of the social ladder are more, more likely uh, to both be working in institutions like jails and prisons and industrial slaughterhouses. um, And also when, when scandals like the Rainey case um, arise and and are publicized to, to be pinned with responsibility for it. And what's striking to me is, you know, take, take, take the Rainey example, Um, you know, the uh the governor at the time rick scott uh the governor of florida at the time uh he didn't suffer uh he's now a senator you know the uh the head of the department of corrections you know no one no one um uh, at the top rungs of, of of the the pyramid, there was very little accountability. There were a couple of guards who were removed from the facility, and and to be sure, those th- they should have been held accountable. This was a sadistic sadistic act, um, and it wasn't a one time act. and And so, there's no question that accountability uh, you know that that those who carried out these these deeds deserve to be punished. Um, but we too often single them out. And, not, and, and then the system remains intact and the people at the higher rungs not only aren't held accountable, but, but sometimes are promoted or, or benefit from this. Um, the, company, the, the situation in that prison, by the way, was exacerbated by, the fact, by privatization, by the fact that uh, Florida had um, entrusted two for-profit companies to run not just the mental health care, but all the health care. its in its prisons and it's really it was really fascinating to me because when we think about prison privatization i think we so often think about you know the privately owned prison
0: yeah let me me just break and i talk all the time about how people you know that the bigger problem is prison privatization not private prisons that only about eight percent of people in american prisons are in private prisons but a hundred percent of the people in american prisons suffer from prison privatization so i couldn't agree with you more go ahead i didn't mean to interrupt
1: yeah, no, that's, that's great to know. And, and, and I'm so glad that, that, that you do talk about that, because to, to be honest, it was news to me. Um, and And yet, as I thought about it, and again, to get to societal responsibility, you know, Privatizing these services was seen as a win-win for the people of Florida because it's cheaper, right? And in fact, the contract that was given to these two companies, Horizon and Wexford, um, obligated them to spend less. And lo and behold, you started having stories in the papers about people with, you know, serious illnesses like cancer being given ibuprofen. Um, you know, or Tylenol, uh, or or not taken for surgeries. And, and, and so, you know, as cost cutting measures, well, that is a societal decision, right? That is a political decision that flows from a lot of uh, very, um, you know, uh, uh, I would say deliberate um, decision making on the part of of people with power. And yet, it's the people at the bottom rungs who end up, you know, being villainized. So I think there is a real need to question that.
0: And you know, it's been tough for me, you know, since my return from incarceration, but yeah, you know, part of your argument is empathy for the correctional officers as a whole. At one point you mentioned someone calling them the other prisoners. And there were, I mean, as from what I can tell from your book, serious you know, mental health and physical consequences for a lot of them. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. So, so again, I don't want to whitewash uh, what those guards at day did, and nor do I want to um, suggest that um, that prison guards uh, are not, you know, powerful actors in their own rights uh, who, who, sh- who who bear responsibility for the decisions they make. But I I definitely question the ease with which. You know, I I think we have to see these guards as as our agents. Um, you know, they are doing work that that under conditions that are 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 um, you know give rise to brutality and violence. And in fact, I I talk at length to a former now now a retired prison guard um, who shared his diary with me, um, and it was uh, it was striking to me because you know on the one hand um, you know he's someone who uh, who. Openly, uh, you know, spoke, spoke not mincing words about the fact that some of the the fellow officers he knew were were t- were brutal and and were he called them serial bullies that they they really bullied uh, certain prisoners and 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 abused them. Uh, but then he also said, you know, uh, the people of Florida get what they pay for. Uh, you know, before you condemn them, let's think about the conditions here. And. And Florida is a state with the third largest prison system in the country, that spent at the time I was writing the second least, the second least on mental health services. So you have a prison and jail system that is effectively doing the dirty work for a society that has not funded these these mental health services. And lo and behold, you know the the, the officers to control the environment learn to do so through brutality and you know this guard uh, bill curtis said to me you know that's that's what i learned i learned that you know we're understaffed uh we don't have rehabilitative programs they outnumber us the way you control this place is through threats and, and brutality and fear um
0: You know, one of my constant critiques of press coverage over the years of prisons and of incarceration is that they rarely try to humanize incarcerated people, even in death. And you talk about tracking down Darren's family, which I thought was really great. Uh, Do you think that part of this kind of uh, psychology or whatever we would call this whole dirty work thing is uh, that part of it relies on us having a collective investment in denying humanity to incarcerated and formally incarcerated people. Is that what enables it to happen to some extent?
1: I think that, that, you know, that's, that's at the heart of the, the section of the book on prisons that, that we, um, you know, if we, it was very important to me to meet Darren Rainey's family. Um, and I met his brother, um, and he showed me pictures of Darren as a young man. Um, he showed me the house that they grew up in. Um, I met some of the neighbors who told me they missed seeing Darren uh, around. Um, and, you know, it's only through encounters like that. It's only through particular stories that, um, that reporters like myself, um, you know, can push past the invisibility and the stereotypes. And I think that, you know, again, t- to emphasize, if not for a prisoner who had blown the whistle and leaked the story, Darren Rainey might have died and no one would have heard about it. But beyond that, the photograph of him that appeared in the Miami Herald was of a man labeled, you know, prisoner, schizophrenic in his prison prison, smocks, you know, in, and, and it's, it's dehumanizing. I mean, it, 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 it makes of that person something other to so many people who, you know, see convicts and, 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 and prisoners as an outgroup and use those terms kind of to separate them out. Um, but, you know, from everything I know, uh, you know, Darren Rainey, like so many, uh, winds up you know in and out of jail uh, through 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 much of his life uh, because of the criminalization of poverty and mental illness um, he's someone who does not have access to services that people in wealthy neighborhoods have he's someone who struggles to find you know work and 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 to make to, to, to earn a paycheck um, and if we just pull back from the particular to think about the broader, You know, structural forces here. We again have to reckon with the fact that that jails and prisons are our largest mental health institutions in this country. And so, you know, it's not just Darren Rainey, it's it's tens of thousands of people every year, who are cycling through these facilities, and whose lives and well being are sacrificed.
0: We just got past the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and virtually none of the hundreds of hours of discussion on the news networks did I see anyone mourn both the loss of the lives of U.S. citizens and the loss of civilians killed by U.S. forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, the people taken to dark sites, tortured and later released, the people tortured in Abu Ghraib, the people released from Guantanamo Bay, or civilians killed by drone strikes. Drone operators are the second form of dirty work that you highlight in the book, what are your thoughts, given that we just passed this milestone, and what should people know about this part of the book?
1: Well, I think that um, you know, again, to to return to the the main theme, um, when you talk about dirty work, I, I I define it as something that society depends on and tacitly condones, but doesn't want to hear too much about. Um, well, think of the think of drone strikes, right? Uh, <laughs> tacitly condone, but d- but don't want to hear too much about. Um, after the invasion of Iraq and, and, and the really, you know, the collapse in a, in a sense of the, the scenario that the proponents of that war told, you know, sold the country, you know, they'll, they'll welcome us and democracy will, will follow and so forth. Well, that didn't work out. And you had, you know, billions of dollars being spent and soldiers coming home, um, with PTSD or even worse in, in coffins. Um, America was exhausted by this and, and really popular opinion turned against the wars. Um, and so what did we do at that point? Um, what we did is we continued the wars through more um, you know, tacit and, and hidden means, um, namely you know, special operation forces uh, operating without much oversight and scrutiny, and drone strikes um, on, a, on a geographically limitless scale. Um, you know, just basically, we, we carry them out where we think a terrorist is, whether we're at war with that nation or not. And so that's the first premise to the drone section, that, that it fits very much, um, you know, what I'm talking about. On the other hand, you know, I think a lot of listeners might say, wait, your book is titled Dirty Work. Drones aren't drones, precision weapons, and precision strikes? And don't the people at the, you know, who are sort of in the kill chain in these strikes, aren't they just playing video games? Isn't this a sort of disembodied, almost clean form of warfare? And I'll, I can say more about that, but, but basically, my conclusion is that, um, that that's something of a myth.
0: Yeah, feel free. I mean, I know that you talk about the psychological trauma that a lot of the people who uh, end up doing that work end up feeling, and also this kind of weird disconnect uh, where they feel like they're not really soldiers, or at least they're told they're not really soldiers in the same way that the people who are in theater feel like they're soldiers, but still have a lot of the same things they have to work through. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, again, central to my definition of dirty work is that, um, it doesn't just cause social harm, but it also uh, harms the people who do it, whether through psychic and emotional wounds that they sustain, or through just a sense of stigma and devaluing, a sense of being devalued. And if you think about the military, um, you know the, the the one derogatory term for for people in the drone program is joystick warriors. Right? Um, these are not real soldiers. These these are people who play. Nintendo, and in fact, when the military at one point proposed giving a Medal of Honor to some people in this program, it was um, there. There was there were complaints from from veterans, from conventional soldiers, who um, you know some of whom said, "This is what this is a Nintendo medal." You know, this isn't a, a medal for for valor. Um, and yet, what's what's so striking is we as a society have 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 sanctioned this. We've we this is the form of warfare. That has become popular because it doesn't, you know, the, the same risks uh, of, of, you know, losing uh, of casualties to our side are not there, but there are actual risks and they're different. What, what I suggest and what I write about in the, in the section of the book is the psychic toll that, that you touched on earlier. Um, you know, society may not be seeing the strikes and who they hit. And the blown up buildings, and the you know, the and 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 have a feeling that um, that you know maybe we hit the right target, maybe not. Um, but the people who do this day in and day out, they do see that. And in fact, the studies by the military suggest they are exposed to uh, more graphic violence uh, than than conventional soldiers, just just by virtue of of sort of sitting there hour after hour and 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 seeing this. And yet they're not on the battlefield right there's not the same esprit de corps there's not the same camaraderie um and so the psychic impact is is a very different one and through everything we we know and through the stories i tell um you know a a very powerful and and potentially damaging
0: tool next you turn to citizens and immigrants working on kind of the kill floors and meat packing plants Uh, There's so much to talk about here, but given everything that has happened with immigration over the last five or six years, and what happened uh, with essential workers at the plants uh, during COVID, this seems to really highlight how we tend to kind of both demonize and count on the same people. And often we both demonize and count on them at the exact same times. So what did you learn from the time you spent with folks working in these plants?
1: Yeah, I mean, in that section of the book, I spoke mostly to Workers at a poultry slaughterhouse in Texas. Um, most of the people I interviewed were undocumented. Um, now, some people will say, well, why are they even in this country? You know, they shouldn't be doing these jobs. Uh, well, uh, take a look at the meat and poultry industry and and who works in it and and how uh, a kind of deliberate recruitment, in, in effect, has taken place, whereby, you know, as meatpacking um, became... Uh, you know, the line speeds increased. The rates of injury grew. Uh, the unions that had, you know, pushed for higher wages and better conditions uh, were defeated, uh, and and were kind of had setbacks and were replaced by by um, you know non-unionized workers. The 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 industry turned increasingly to. Uh, A labor force consisting of immigrants and and often undocumented people, and sometimes refugees from from wars from other countries. Um, People desperate for work, people easily manipulable, and and often afraid. Um, And so, you know, and why are they afraid? Well, you know, they want to keep their jobs, Uh, they may not speak the language. Uh, and furthermore, they're aware that, you know, as we saw under the Trump administration, um, there are raids, there was a very big ice raid on a, on a meatpacking plant in Tennessee. And I can tell you that that the echo of that was heard across the country in the meatpacking industry. In fact, I wrote about a plant in Texas, but I can, I, I, I spent time in another state, thinking I would write about a plant there. And no one would talk to me. Uh, not even under pseudonyms. And and that was just, it was the first time that had happened to me that even, you know, no names, no no identifying information, still wouldn't talk. That was the level of fear. And it was related to, you know, the fear of being deported or being, you know, ending up in, a, in an immigration detention center.
0: You also talk about the oil industry, and particularly the oil industry after the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Eventually, you suggest that the industry knows that they can get away with almost anything because America is addicted to cheap oil. It seems odd to me that the externalities never seem to get counted. I know I personally won a national debate championship in 1990, arguing that we needed to take climate change seriously. That was 1990. Uh, and, and look where we're at now, what do you want people to know about this form of dirty work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I write about uh, a roustabout uh, named Stephen uh, Stone, who was on the Deepwater Horizon rig um, that exploded in the Gulf of Mexico and caused, you know, huge environmental devastation and also uh, killed many of his co-workers, Stephen's co-workers. And one of the most, um, you know, striking and tragic, uh, things that, that Steven underwent afterwards is, you know, he went to Washington DC to a congressional hearing, um, with, with his wife, um, and, uh, they're there watching the members of Congress talk about, you know, this awful, this awful spill, um, and holding up pictures of the victims. But the the pictures they held up were not of workers who had had died. They were pictures of pelicans um, and and the fowl and and the wildlife that had been affected. And of course, that's important. Um, It's not that that it isn't important, but it was just striking to the folks who were there, the workers and the family members of the workers who had died, um, that in a sense, the workers were forgotten. Right, because because they're dirty, because they work in this dirty industry, and 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 they're you know part of the problem. Um, and you know, I think the there's there's no question that if you work in the oil industry, you are working in an industry that's causing you know devastating environmental uh, you know problems that 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 we all have to contend with. Um, but let's note. That most of the senators and all of them, I assume, um, in that room, probably drove to that hearing. Um, or, or if if they didn't drive to that hearing, they they drove at some point, you know, and 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 put gas into their vehicles. And and you know, our lifestyles are are dependent on the burning of fossil fuels. And America, you know, burns I think uh, roughly a quarter of the world's fossil fuels. Um, so you know, it's not lost on on people like Stephen Stone that on the one hand you want to condemn the workers, uh, the roustabouts. And, and on the other hand, um, you know, you want your lifestyle, you want your, your, your freedom to uh, to consume and, and, and burn fossil fuels. So as a society, we have definitely not reckoned with that. Uh,
0: the last topic you cover in the book is what you call dirty tech. It's kind of like the other end of dirty work. Uh, and I wanted that there are kind of two things that I thought were uh, particularly interesting here. One is this kind of difference that you suggest between holistic versus prescriptive technologies and kind of the ability to break up work so that people doing the work don't necessarily understand how it might eventually to be deployed. Do you want to talk a little more about that?
1: Sure. Uh, yeah. I, I, so, so you know, we've seen in the last five, 10 years, um, a, a real dramatic shift in the tech industry, which had this kind of aura of, you know, virtue um, s- surrounding it, you know, pretty much from the '90s on on down, as companies were were, you know, bringing out these magical devices that that everybody was carrying around and enthralled with, and and we still are enthralled with those devices. But um, what we've seen from the tech world in more recent years is is that, um, you know. A real a real questioning of what this is doing to us, you know, attention spans to to um, you know uh, the, the the circulation of propaganda on social media sites that that are targeted to really to brainwash people um, on 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 down to things like um, you know uh, programs and, and 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 I write about one of them uh, at Google. Uh, to supply um, to do a search engine uh, that would be featured in in China uh, that would allow the Chinese government to uh, you know screen out terms like democracy, right? So all these ethical questions start start rising, and I think a lot of people in the tech world are now kind of asking themselves, you know, how clean is this industry? How how virtuous is it? Um, but one of the differences, uh, which was pointed out to me really by by a former Google worker, is that um, you know when you're working in tech, it it's much easier to uh, separate yourself from the task from from the end result of the task, and in that sense, to to kind of see what you're doing as value neutral, right? You are not the person who designed the spyware that was used to you know. Uh, track down dissidents—a a story that that recently uh, hit hit the national news. Uh, an Israeli company selling spyware that that went to governments that repressed. Pegasus, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, but but you know, it's very easy to for for the tech in the tech world, from what I understand, you know, very few people are actually putting their fingers directly on that on the the sort of this, you know, I'm the person who designed the spyware, it's segmented out and and broken down in such a way that you can diffuse responsibility. Um, And so it becomes much easier to kind of, in a sense, you know, disavow any involvement. Um, I think the second thing that's different about, you know, tech, uh, people in tech, and for that matter, any high paying profession, any prestigious high paying profession, where there may be ethical questions that trouble some of the people doing it. Is that um, if you're if you're working in a white collar profession that is very well paid, um, you have a lot more flexibility and 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 a, and a bigger cushion to to shift jobs, right? You've got these skills that 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 you can that are very marketable. Um, you may have, you know, the ability to move or t- to buy a home somewhere else and or just to take some time away uh, and, and use some of the money you earned. Um, these, these choices are not available to prison guards. Um, these choices are not available to slaughterhouse workers. Um, so dirty work, I think we have to think about it as something that's shaped by power, by class, uh, by privilege, by race. Um, those things, you know, very much determine who ends up doing it and who doesn't. Uh, But that's not to say that that there aren't, you know, that these ethical questions don't arise in every profession. And 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 indeed they do.
0: Yeah, one prospect the second thing I wanted to talk about real quickly is that you raised the idea that soon people might no longer be necessary to doing these jobs, that algorithms and robots might replace the essential dirty worker Uh, You don't spend too much time on the book, but there's been kind of on this in the book, but there's been a a decent amount of pushback against the idea that robots will replace human jobs. But what's interesting here is that these are jobs that need to be done, but we want to pretend we aren't responsible for. So what are your kind of thoughts on this kind of potential transition where dirty work becomes automated dirty work, I guess?
1: Yeah, I think think that's a real possibility um, because I think, as you say, the... um, the temptation to have you know oh it's just a machine doing it it's an algorithm it's not a it's not a person um you know no one no one individual um authorized that strike that strike took place you know in a distant place because um a machine detected a threat um and and in a similar way actually with with uh, you know with oil drilling and with, with, uh, with fossil fuels, um, you know, there's this, uh, very real possibility that, that, um, you know, the high-tech world will, uh, make it possible to detect and drill for and, and find, you know, um, fossil fuels in, in ways that, that eliminate the number of roustabouts and, and drillers and dredgers that, that, that are hired to do this kind of work. Um, what won't go away, is the social impact and and the the potential harm to society so uh, you know I think that 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 is something to be concerned about I don't go into it in depth um, in part because I, I am I am in the camp of those who think we're a little bit overselling the degree to which the future is one in which robots will do it all um, you know in fact people talk about Drone strikes as unmanned aerial vehicles, Um, and one person in the program spoke very heatedly to me about that and said, "You know that that's that's so wrong. It's hypermanned. It's not. It's not unmanned. There are so many eyes on. You know, layers of kind of. You know, from the imagery analysts to the sensor operators to the pilots to the commanders. To it's it's a very it's it's a chain of of human." decision making. Uh, and I think that's probably likely at least in the immediate
0: future. I feel like the book in some ways is kind of a critique of democracy or at least of the blind spots of democracy. Uh, or maybe not blind spots might. I mean it might, might even be that they're not blind spots. They're spots that we know of but then ignore. Uh, do you see any hope for us? Can we become a democratic society that is empathetic to the people and places and kind of, can we change, uh, these darker places in our, in our own, uh, uh, political, uh, and, and, real world?
1: I don't have a, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, but I am not, um, someone who has a, a simple black and white view of human nature. I think that it all depends on the incentives, um, and on, on what we do collectively, actually, because one of the conclusions of my book is that um, you know, uh, although we are all implicated in, in dirty work, um, we are also, so in, to that sense, the responsibility for it is shared. Um, the solutions to it are also shared and have to be collective, right? If we want to change, if we don't want to read about stories like Darren Rainey's Ten years from Now, we need to address the issue of relying on jails and prisons to warehouse the mentally ill. Um, it's not going to change if one person runs out and you know, helps one person in one particular place. That, that's, that's, that's a magnanimous act. It's an act of compassion. I applaud it but it won't change the larger structure of things unless as a society we're willing to see these deeper structures and patterns. And so the book is really about those deeper structures and it's a call for awareness in a sense of, of what we're tolerating that, that maybe we really shouldn't.
0: This season, I'm always at, I'm also asking people if there are any criminal justice related books they might recommend to others. Do you have any personal favorites?
1: I do. I would love to recommend uh, a book called Marking Time by, um, Nicole Fleetwood. Um, Nicole Fleetwood is a, um, an American studies professor, uh, now at NYU at New York University. Um, but she's written this, um, this wonderful book about the art that is made in jails and prisons by incarcerated people. And it's, it's a, you know, uh nuanced and complex and and very much humanizes both the artists uh, and and takes seriously the work um and, and also draws a lot of attention to the 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 constraints that that these that, that those who create this art uh live under so it's 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 a really important book and one I'd, I'd highly recommend.
0: That's uh, really interesting. I, li- I just came back a couple days ago from the opening of an art, ex- uh, actually six art exhibits at the Broad Museum here in Lansing uh, that are formerly incarcerated artists uh, oh, driven. Wow. So uh, that's really uh, great. That's a great recommendation. I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked but did not?
1: You did a great job. You know, I think that the, the, um, the one thing I would say is that uh, – you know, I I um no, I think I think you did a, I think you, I think you did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, if I you was, had I something was, to say,
0: I, go ahead and say it. Uh, I, you know, yeah, uh, I, was,
1: I, I was gonna yeah. I, I was gonna I was gonna say that um you know the other the other thing I hope that that people will get out of my book is is just a set of powerful human stories. Um, and you know we've talked a lot about really difficult ethical decisions and the grim. Uh, you know consequences of those decisions, but um, the people in the book are, um, to me, people we can learn from. Um, they're not just people who who are caught up in in awful systems making decisions that um, are compromising. they are also people who display um, courage uh, at some points, who um, you know display their their. Uh, their vulnerability, uh, in the case of, of the drone operators, I got to know, um, and, and their humanity. And I think that, um, you know, the, what, I, what I hope is that the impulse to judge what these folks do is tempered by uh, a sense of, you know, how different would I have acted in that situation? And, you know, maybe I shouldn't just leap to condemn and, and think about, you know, the larger structures that, that, that led to this
0: are there uh places where people can find you or places you would prefer people try to find the book
1: sure um if you live in in or near a a, a, in, in a community uh or near a community with an independent bookstore community bookstore please get 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 a copy there if you can um Dirty Work is certainly available on Amazon and can be ordered online, but um, we need to support community bookstores, especially in this pandemic, which has been so hard for so many small businesses. Um, You can follow me um, on Twitter. Uh, Just the handle is, uh, you know, my name, E-Y-A-L-P-R-E-S-S, the at symbol. Um, And uh, and I have a website, uh, www.alpress.com uh, again, just my name.com and I post, you know, talks, ju- journalism I've done, um, and information about my books. So, uh, thanks very much and hope to hear from people.
0: Yeah. Thanks again. I offer for doing this. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks again. And now my take. We are about to enter into a 2022 election cycle with Republicans running on on tough-on-crime and Democrats running to shore up their tough-on-crime credentials. Meanwhile, there is still no evidence that our current approach to crime, unleashing police to arrest, prosecutors to charge, judges to sentence, and prisons to destroy people utterly, does one damn thing to reduce crime. The causes of crime are only exacerbated by our punishment system. Rather than giving the over 96% of incarcerated people who will one day return to society hope for a meaningful future, we continue to pile trauma on top of trauma and return people broke, broken, and without opportunities or even safe living space. We spend over $80 billion a year on policing, over $80 billion a year on incarceration. God knows how much crime might have been prevented if we actually took a deep breath looked at the total disaster the system is in its face, and actually started investing in something, anything, that might work better than this absurdity we call a criminal justice system. But despite this, get ready for a full year of politicians tripping over themselves to double down on all of these failed ideas while the press continues to fan the flames of fear of crime. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. I started this podcast in part to be part of building a coalition of people who wouldn't fall for this nonsense anymore, but sadly our movement still has a lot more work to do. So make sure and speak out, stand up, keep fighting, and don't listen to this nonsense that we're about to hear in 2022. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarceration nation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or who have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, to Ann Espo for helping with our transcripts and social media images, and to Alex Mayo, who helps with our website. Make sure and add us on your social media and share our posts across your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.